Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. team. Happy Wednesday. We are on the countdown to Christmas which is awesome and today I'm bringing to you a conversation I had with Christopher Kelly who is the co-founder and coach at Nourish Balance Thrive which is not only a personalized and individual uh, nutrition and lifestyle platform, it is also a well-known, hugely successful podcast whereby Chris each week brings us experts in the fields of health, nutrition and performance and it is definitely one of my favourites. I really wanted to chat to Chris because he has had such a journey with regards to his own personal health and also the professional journey of Nourish Balance Thrive was something I was really interested in to see how it kind of uh, was created and has evolved to become such a hugely successful entity. So Nourish Balance Thrive is a lab-based supplement plan that provides expert dietary advice and consultative performance planning and it's uniquely tailored to your lifestyle. The overall end goal is to enable you to better understand your body so you can optimize performance and stay healthy in the long term. So in this interview which is super interesting and entertaining. We discuss Chris's personal journey back to health as a competitive mountain biker and also Nourish Balance Thrive creation and evolution to where it is today. So sit back or jump on your wind trainer, go for your run and enjoy this conversation that I have with Christopher Kelly. And we're on. Welcome Christopher Kelly. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, very grateful for the opportunity to be here. It's a pleasure. And um, I was just saying as we came on the call that I first heard about you in 2015. And I remember I was on a run, actually, in Parnell. I was doing hill sprints. And I was listening to Rob Wolf on Paleo Solution talk to some British guy about <laughs> the Kalish Institute and the Kalish oh, yeah, organic yeah, yeah. acids and how you had kind of started building a career completely different from your hedge fund finance experience background and I one remember being fascinated by the organic acids kind of information mm. that you were sharing and two like I always feel really amazed that people can take such a I suppose a zigzag or a totally pivot in their life and then build something from kind of the ground up which is how I see you've kind of approached nourish balance thrive to be like one of the kind of most popular podcasts probably out there and just such a wealth of information. Well, yeah, that's a great description of what happens. Yeah, exactly. I reinvented myself in health, having spent two decades working as a software engineer at various hedge funds and tech companies. And uh, I just want to say we should start a campaign to bring back the Paleo Solution podcast, because as much as I like the healthy rebellion, I do like or did like Rob's interviews. I really miss those. 
maybe that's my bias as a practitioner. You know, I don't find the listener questions very interesting or as interesting. Uh, so I wish you would go back to doing some interviews. It's interesting you say that because I love a, a Q&A with listeners. And I think I pick up nuggets that I'm like, oh, super interesting. I'm going to write a blog about that. Or <laughs> I kind of go down that rabbit hole. But I agree. I really enjoyed those interviews he did. But can we start, Chris? How did you even get to where you're at to begin with? So what kind of started your journey in this health and well-being space? Yeah, so following the conventional advice. I listened to what the cardiologist said on the BBC about saturated fat is how I got to where I am today. So yeah, thank you, Mr. Cardiologist. I wouldn't be here reinventing myself doing more meaningful work had it not been for what you said on the BBC Breakfast News. I mean, it's not just that, is it? I mean, I've been following the conventional advice on the telly for pretty much everything in my life, uh, not just diet. But I guess things really came for it to the head, to a head for me, when I started training to be an endurance athlete and eating a lot more of what I'd already been eating, right? So cereal for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, pasta for dinner, and uh, you know, stacking in the hours, doing maybe 20 hours a week of mountain biking, road riding, trying to become a more competitive cyclist. And yeah, the wheels really came off the wagon. A lot of fatigue, you know, insomnia. Actually, I know that you've just interviewed Greg Potter and uh, Greg's work is very pertinent to the problems I were having. Uh, maybe how long has it got now? It's like almost 10 years ago now, I suppose. Not being able to sleep at night and then being really tired during the day, starving hungry all the time, getting up at two o'clock in the morning to eat breakfast and then getting back to sleep on the postprandial slumber, you know, and then getting up and eating breakfast again as soon as <laughs> and it all being carbs, like oatmeal, skimmed milk, dried fruit, a ton of honey, just like carb-tastic, no protein or fat anywhere to be seen. I didn't actually own any animal fat or plant fat. It was just like Teflon everything. And it's just so much gas and bloating, diarrhea. I, actually, the one thing that got me to go to the doctor was uh, erectile dysfunction. I couldn't get it up, got kicked off of some girl's stoop. I was dating at the time. This was before I met my wife. And so I went to the GP and the GP said, oh, these, this is what happens to athletes, you know. I don't know what to say. Here's a script for Viagra and go see a gastroenterologist and, and they'll sort out your gut. And the gastroenterologist said, oh, it's nothing to do with your diet. At that time, I'd found Joel Friel's book, The Paleo Diet for Athlete, that he co-authored with Lauren Cordain. And I'd started to tinker with that. And the gastroenterologist said, no, nah, no, nah, I don't think so. It's nothing to do with that. We've got some, what you've got is IBS. Just like, I know now is not a diagnosis, right? He's like, you know you have uh, IBS. That's why you're there. Yeah. I just told you that, right? But yeah, you tell it back to me in fancy words and it sounds like you've made a diagnosis. But they said, oh, we've got some steroid anti-inflammatory drugs for you. And when they stop working, we've got surgery. And luckily, by that time, I'd met another girl who is now the woman who's my wife. And she'd recently finished her master's degree in food science. And she'd become a bit disenfranchised with that because it seemed like there were two options. Either she became a registered dietitian and she didn't like what she'd have to recommend if she did that. And uh, the other option was you become a flavor chemist, right? So you make super tasty food, like the type that Rob Wolf writes about in Why to Eat, you know, stuff that you can't stop eating because it's so damn tasty. And she said to me, you know, you should really try an elimination diet before you go for that steroids and surgery route. Yeah. And, and that's what I did. Yeah. So she reformulated my paleo type diet that consisted mostly of nuts and eggs and seeds <laughs> and uh, turned it into something a bit more nutritious shall we say in hypoallergenic and that was the what we now call the autoimmune paleo yeah, interesting. Diet. it was transformational for me it was only a couple of weeks before I started to see huge improvement in the way that I felt and my digestive health and 
objective things too, like high sensitivity C-reactive protein that was measuring in blood. Yeah. And just incredible transformation. And, and then a few things came together at the same time that was kind of interesting. I'd been riding bikes with a pro mountain biker. Her name's Jamie Kendallweed. And she'd been working as a primary care practitioner locally. It was, again, a little bit disenfranchised with what she was doing because she had a, I don't know, was it 10, 15 year education, 250,000 US dollars in the hole. And, uh, you know, you start work on day one. Oh, you've got seven minutes with this patient. By the way, there's 30 more after this one. You know, what are you going to do? Like, you, you know what's going to help that person with their long term health. But the only tool you have is the prescription pad. And so she was a bit disenfranchised, too. And so we got together and we started MBT. And then I guess I got another lucky break. You know, you don't realize how lucky these things are until afterwards but i got another lucky break which was the opportunity to speak on ben greenfield's podcast yeah so i guess this must have been 2014 it was a year before you heard me on rob ball yeah and that was amazing i just told the story i just told you and a bunch of people phoned me up and said i don't know you know whatever you did here's my credit card like tell me the diet i want to know all the other stuff like just send it to me let's just do this and i had no way of scheduling these people i had no payment gateway i had nothing you know like the website crashed it was crazy but we figured it out and here we are six or seven years later and uh, it's not me doing most of the coaching now back then it was just me telling people what to do and yeah, we've yeah. way more sophisticated than that you know like the art and craft of coaching i had a very wonderful performance psychologist by the name of dr simon marshall come along and he took me under his wing and yeah so we've got much better at the art and craft of coaching and, and now i've got megan hall she finished her master's degree in nutritional biology, I believe it is, but she had part of her master's thesis published in the journal Cell Metabolism on ketogenic diets. Yeah. And it's her that's doing most of the technical coaching, reviewing labs yeah. and helping people improve their health and performance. She's a really wonderful human. And then I've had other, I've had former clients come and be health coaches alongside me and two people that run the back office that do the world's most fantastic customer support, which I think is super duper important in what we do. Yeah. And they also have their own health journey. And I've got a strength and conditioning coach that's been eating a carnival diet. So it's just like this incredible team that, you know, the people have come along and taken me under their wing. And uh, that's, that's why I'm still here, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've really built an amazing kind of team. You're so right. But it also, I think it takes, you know, you need to be a, a pretty decent human being in order to have these amazing people around you. You know, it's kind of reflective of probably how much you've also given out in terms of your level of knowledge and what you've experienced. Well, I appreciate that's very generous of you. I think really what it is, is that everybody that has a health transformation, they want to share that, right? It's like kind of human nature. You find something cool, you want to share it with other people because, you know, it's not fun to like find something and have it all to yourself and have no one know about it. And, you know, you see that people who go on to a paleo type diet or Whole30 or autoimmune, whatever it is, 30 days later, they have this transformation and they want to shout it from the top of the trees, quit their job and you know, do a health coach training course, right? And, uh, Just like Christopher Kelly and look how successful you've become. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, could you do this? Could this be a small part of what you do for a living? And I think that there are opportunities there for meaningful work. I mean, that's what I was lacking, working in tech companies and in finance. Yeah. I mean, sure, I had enough money and uh, that's great. And, uh, you know, they gave me paid vacation and PPO health insurance and all this stuff. But then you suffer this other problem, which is a crisis of purpose. You know, you've got the, the world's best and brightest all working on problems they just don't care about. I mean, it's like a standing joke at Google. Maybe I should be careful about what I say, but <laughs> you've got all these incredible mathematicians and physicists and all these super bright people, and they're all working on algorithms to get people to click on shit so that they can buy stuff they don't need and install games they shouldn't be playing, right? It's like, no wonder there's a crisis of purpose. And so I think health coaching and these fields, like yours, nutrition as well, like 
has great potential for people who are seeking purpose. Totally. But you know, what I really appreciate about Nourish, Balance, Thrive is how it's evolved over time as well, Chris. Mm. And I think how you've approached your own health and your own approach to diet, as I understand, has also evolved. Can I ask you, what I find really interesting is you went, like when you were kind of, I suppose, at the height of your own health crisis, and you went along to the doctor because you had like erectile dysfunction and low testosterone, obviously, was that, did that play? I think it was, you know, it's not one of the things I was tracking at the time, but you're probably right. It probably would have been a lot lower than it is now. However, I think with hindsight, the main problem was endothelial function. I think I had really bad circulation. Interesting. So the signal was there for my brain. It's just that the plumbing was broken, right? And so, I mean, obviously this is a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And you can find that in the literature if you go looking. Yeah. But there was other symptoms too. My general circulation was not good. The circulation in my extremities. You know, when I was out on the bike, I'd get very, very cold hands to the point where I couldn't operate the brakes. Yeah, yeah. Not that, I mean, I live in California, right? Like that shouldn't happen very often. And, you know, I go snowboarding and the moment I put my snowboarding boots on, like my feet would be freezing. And then, you know, it'd take you a while to figure this out. But if I did the laces up, even like a little bit tight, it would cut the circulation off. So I think with the erectile dysfunction, that's what was going on is that I just had terrible circulation. Was it calories? It sounded to me, it sounds the way you describe it, that you were, it wasn't a lack of food, but it was actually just a lack of nutrition. And if I think about male athletes who I work with, like it is, you know, there's that low energy availability and the relative energy deficiency in sport, which is not just in relation to females, which is why it's expanded from the female yeah, athlete triad to reds. Right. But endurance athletes also experience the same thing. And often we put it down to energy availability. But the way that you're describing it, you know, I just wonder whether it in part is just the lack of the nutrients required. Right. For the yeah, it is. That's definitely part of it you nailed it right you sort of overfed and undernourished and yeah I see that all the time now with little kids I've got little kids now yeah and you see them at school or whatever and you know I saw the a lunchbox the other day it was the saddest thing I've ever seen it was half a bagel dry it was some crackers like something out of a box just like regular crackers you get in the store and some popcorn yeah it's just like the saddest thing like and these kids are like you know you see them they're like putting it into their face like they're feeding a juicer and they're starving hungry and malnourished like they're looking for protein they're looking for essential fats yeah and they're not finding it and so yeah i'm sure that was true for me to a certain extent but i'm also pretty sure that whatever i was eating was causing a great deal of inflammation in my gut so yeah with the gastroenterology i got about half the way there towards a diagnosis of celiac but you know you get even an engineer that doesn't know anything about health eventually figures out that oh the bread might be an important factor and so you cut it out and you instantly feel better yeah and then you can't get the diagnosis of celiac anymore because you need to be eating gluten in order to get it and so I mean that was definitely a huge part of it my gut was just an inflammatory mess and then I was shoving kilo of maltodextrin down the hatch every day you know I'd come back from a four-hour ride with probably 12 of those goo wrappers in my back pocket all stuck together in a big disgusting clump yeah and I think that eating that much refined carbohydrate, especially maltodextrin, is probably a pretty good recipe for causing gut dysbiosis. Yeah, completely. Uh, candida overgrowth. And I had multiple parasitic infections. I had a, some, sort of, uh, some sort of worm that was like, very easy to treat with a pharmaceutical intervention. But it was obviously just all downstream of this inflammatory environment that I was creating with diet and lifestyle. Yeah. So you mentioned one of your first maybe introductions to a more or a different approach, a less conventional approach was 
Joe Friel, Lauren Cordain's book, The Paleo yeah. Athlete. How did you feel with kind of, you know, you're reading this other information. Did you find it not like, oh, hang on, this is well different from what I understood? Or were you at that point right. where you were open to trying something different? Because clearly what you were doing wasn't working. So can you remember kind of how your diet might have changed even in those initial times? It was really rapid. I'm the sort of person that can just spin on a dime. And now having worked with literally thousands of clients, like I know that that is not at all normal. Like most people, they have what Simon would call ambivalence, right? I have feelings both for and against. You know, I'm eating this food. It's making me feel like crap. But I really love that food and I don't want to cut it out. You know, like you've got this emotional relationship with the food. And so they call that ambivalence, right? Like having feelings both for and against the thing. That ambivalence, if it's there at all, it resolves very quickly in me. So the moment I think something is causing a problem, it's gone like that day, like in that second. And I've never had a problem with behavior change. And it might be partly, you know, I discussed this with Mickey Trescott, who has authored some really fantastic books on the autoimmune paleo diet, including the first cookbook that my wife bought. And that was the book that really rescued me was for some people, I think your health is so bad that you have no choice but to do something else. Like if you can't get out of bed and you think that changing your diet might help you get out of bed you're going to change your diet, right? Whereas if you're just walking around with a low grade fatigue and maybe you're not being the best version of yourself, but it's not that bad, then maybe your motivation to change is much less. Well, it's so interesting, right? So I had an auntie at 38 who had a heart attack and that did not stop her smoking, drinking, poor diet. She's still here, strangely, like it is 35 years later. That's amazing. It's interesting what motivates and drives people to that behavior change or what are the blocks or what are the barriers. And what is interesting to me is how quick you say that you are to change your behavior, yet you're so successful at helping others change. Whereas oftentimes people who do not have a problem with behavior change will be like, come on, to people they're coaching or they're trying to also help go, well, it's easy. I did it. Well, so I cheated, right? I didn't know. Like there's so many things I know with hindsight were a really good decision. Like niching down on athletes like I think too many I mean I still see this today like uh, people who are probably really fantastic so for example I saw a physician assistant here in the US he also had a a bunch of credentials in nutrition I'm sure he does fantastic work and I looked at his website and it was basically his business card blown up big right and so there was a list of things that he could help and it was basically nothing he couldn't help with and I'm sure he's a great guy that does fantastic work and I wouldn't be surprised if he can help with all of those things but when I look at his website I see everything and I see nothing, you know, like he appeals to everyone and in doing so appeals to no one. Yeah. And being really specific about who it is you can help, I think has been really an important part of why we're still around. And so that was the thing that I did was I said, well, you know, we help athletes overcome chronic health problems, especially insomnia and gut issues, hormones, and we help you improve performance. Yeah. And I mean, that was great because it was specific. And so athletes said, oh, you guys do what looks a lot like functional medicine. I like the sound of that. And you work with athletes. That's great. Like, you know, it's like that specific. You know, I should work with you and not anyone else, you know. And so that's been really helpful from the marketing perspective. But it's also been essential to overcome the, my lack of behavior change skills. Yeah. Right? Like it, a lot of athletes think like I do. All you need to do is frame this intervention in terms of performance and they'll do it. Right. Like, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in your coaching or what do you call it do you call it coaching I do actually um I've kind of I've moved away from that just kind of the consultation but it is coaching because you do kind of form a relationship with someone and so much of what we do is about relationships they kind of have to invest and buy into you and your approach and philosophy and then that makes it so much easier for them to kind of take on board your 
recommendations, right. I think. But I mean, the crudest, and I'll oversimplify here, you know, what do you want to do? I want to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Okay, eat more protein and you'll qualify for the Boston Marathon. Like that's, okay, great. I'm eating more protein. Like, athletes are like that. They're yeah, like, totally. Yeah, they'll start doing it that afternoon. Whereas, like you said, most people that you see in the world walk down the street and these are the people you're going to meet are people more like your auntie, you know, that have already had a heart attack and they're still smoking cigarettes. What's up with that? It says smoking kills on the packet and it almost did and you're still doing it. Like that is far more common in the world than us athletes who are in this tiny bubble. I know. And I think we forget that as well sometimes as well. Right. Of course. So Chris, so a couple of things I'm thinking is, one, was it a nerve wracking kind of thing to go, right, I'm going to put aside my successful financial career, kind of hit the stop button there. And then two, did any part of you, when you started getting contacted by all of these people post Ben Greenfield podcast, did any part of you go, oh crap, what if this actually doesn't work? What if I am (laughs) an anomaly? Like, (laughs) I don't know, like, or were you just confident that this was going to work? Yeah, so to answer your first question, which is, were you worried about giving up a career in finance? Their answer is no. I'm a software engineer. I have a first-class degree in computer science from Southampton University in the UK, which is a really good university. Yeah. I'm living in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, come on. The hedge fund, they gave me a $30,000 golden handshake when I left, and that, that was what I, the money I used to start MBT. And you know, I thought, you know what? Let's give it a try for six months. I'll burn through this 30 grand I never thought I was going to get. And when I run out of money, I'll go get another job as a software engineer. No big deal. You know, it'll probably take me two weeks to get the ball rolling. And then I'll still have recruiters trying to contact. I mean, to this day, I still have recruiters in London asking me if I could come and do a job in London. And I've not been living in London for over 15 years. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, what I do is a rare and valuable skill. So to reinvent myself in a completely unrelated industry was not really that big of a risk, if I'm honest. And then, you know, oh, would this work? Yeah, that's a really good point. If I'd known what I know now, <laughs> without Simon, yeah, it would have been a much scarier proposition. But you don't know what you don't know at the time. I didn't know that you couldn't just tell people what to do. Yeah. And they would do it. Like, I didn't know that could be a potential problem. It was only a couple of years later. And then Simon came along. Did I really start to fully understand it? So, yeah, I mean, I guess they call this the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Like, in the beginning, your confidence is very high when your knowledge is very low. And then you slowly descend into the valley of despair and... <laughs> You know, hopefully I'm, I'm the, on the other side of that now and I'm like starting to climb back out of that into uh, the peak of enlightenment or whatever they call it. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was re-listening to the Rob Wolf podcast and as I understand it, you kind of went, you moved from autoimmune kind of paleo, but it was much more of a ketogenic approach for you in the early days. And how has it changed for you as a mountain biker, I suppose, over the last few years? Like, how has your diet kind of transitioned? That's a really good question. Yeah, I did drink the keto Kool-Aid in the beginning. Mm. Can you call it that? Um, the <laughs> Prove It flavoured keto Kool-Aid. Oh, we all did. Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to host the Keto Summit in 2016. Yes. And I say lucky enough because I was working with uh, a team, Jeremy and Louise Hendon. Like they'd known about the diet forever. Like they'd recovered their health with the Atkins diet in the 90s. You know, like they knew it worked. It's just they got the timing right. Like they said, okay, 2016, this is it. Like we should go with this keto thing. This is, this is prime time. Like, and it's ready. Yeah. And so we did the keto summit and we interviewed, I did most of the interviews. I interviewed people like Dominic D'Agostino and Tom Siegfried and Rob Wolf and Ben Greenfield and Dave Asper, like everyone, like 30 experts I interviewed in two weeks. And then most of them pushed traffic at this thing, right? So you set up affiliate marketing and the people who interview Obviously, not all of them can push traffic, yeah. but most of them push traffic towards that. And it was a huge success. I mean, it built my email list. It filled our practice full of keto endurance athletes. 
and it was a, a huge success. And at that time, probably around that time, you heard me on Rob Wolf in 2015, I started tinkering with the keto diet, was somewhat enamored, maybe had a bit of a, a bromance with Dominic D'Agostino. You think how, how many people listen to this will, will relate <laughs> to that? You know, you heard him speak on Dave Asprey's podcast in 2014 or something, and you fell in love with him. He is a very handsome man. If you ever get the chance to meet him in person, he's quite often at the Ancestral Health Symposium, isn't he? You might have met him, have you? Yeah, I, I saw him there, yeah. He's a very compelling human. Yeah, so I went on a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet and I don't think it was better. With hindsight, again, I don't think it was better than a low carb paleo approach. And actually, that is a good example where I broke. I was kind of the exception to what I said. I think I persisted with that diet longer than I should, given the objective evidence. My performance on the bike was terrible, honestly. I got super skinny. I got down to like less than 65 kilos. I'm five foot, just under five foot eight. So about 175 centimeters. Oh, wow. And I got down to less than 65 kilos. So you would have thought that'd be awesome. But my power was so rubbish on the keto diet. Yeah. It didn't make up for it. My power to weight ratio was still worse than when I was much heavier. And then eventually I started to get fat. I mean, this is, you know this, that anytime you restrict food choices, you're going to decrease calories. People won't know what to eat. They'll get bored of eating the same things. Yeah. You have a spontaneous reduction in the amount of food that they're eating. I'm sure that's an important part of why keto works so well. But eventually, Jimmy Moore, you figure out how to make it tasty, right? You start eating a stick of butter or my thing was vinegar. I realized that if you add vinegar to fat, you get salad dressing. You can almost drink that, you know? <laughs> and so I got pretty fat eating keto and my performance sucked. And it wasn't like I was short on expert advice to try and bring my power, but it just never happened for me. You know, I've had breakfast with Steve Finney. He talked about electrolytes a lot, obviously. And that just didn't do anything for me. It just didn't bring back my power in the same way that eating a moderate. So that's how I eat now is just, it's still relatively low carbohydrate compared to most people you're going to meet out on the trail. Yeah. But it's probably not ketogenic a lot of the time. It's more like, I don't know, probably 150 200 grams of carbs depending on how much activity I do yeah and it brought my power right back now that's been so important especially for cycle cross you know where I'm doing 60 minute races yeah lots and lots of corners highly glycolytic keto really sucks with that and I've interviewed a number of elite cycle cross races I say a number the number is two Katie Compton and Jeremy Powers and both of them had the same experience on the keto diet is fantastic for body composition in the off season but when it comes to game time and I've got to pay my mortgage with the money I earn from this race then I'm going to eat some carbs right yeah for sure and um did you hit like the types of carbs that you I suppose include now I imagine are things like what we would expect like paleo style uh sweet potato are you a potato man yeah I guess I am now I might use the term cellular carbohydrates, right? That's that, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they've not been mashed up. And there, there are some exceptions to that. Like, what are they called? They're called siete, I think, in the US. And they make these chips made out of cassava. Yes. And uh, you're familiar with yeah. them. Yeah, it's, it's basically a slightly different version of the shit that got me into trouble in the first place. But <laughs> I eat some of those and I seem to get away with it. And I eat these things we call coconut dates. I don't know if you're familiar with those. It's like a date yeah. that's been mashed up and then it's got kind of coconut on the outside of it. They're super tasty. Yeah, and, delicious. Uh, I mean, it must be acellular. I can't imagine that the cells are still intact and, <laughs> and dates are pretty dense carbohydrates to begin with. So that's about as refined as my refined carbs get. Yeah. Do you know what? I think as well that like your health is in such a different position right now that yeah. your ability to tolerate things will be so much better than yeah. what it would have been 10 years ago. I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, there's literally no mistake I haven't made. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, the sleep stuff, I mean, you talked about that with Greg Potter. You know, I'm getting up in the middle of the night, switching on all the lights, eating food during the middle of the night, telling my brain it's daytime in the middle of the night. And then I'm sleeping under my desk in my office during the day 
thus relieving any sleep pressure that had accumulated, making it more difficult to sleep at night. And the list goes on. Like you could stress totally. management, like I'm overtraining, uh, not eating enough. Like you name I've, every mistake I've made over the last 10 years, I think. Are you racing? Obviously COVID, but outside yeah. of it, are you someone who regularly would race? Yeah, last year I did a bunch of races and did really well. I was really happy with my performance. And this year I've done nothing. I, I don't think there has been any races. Like someone told me, and then I looked and confirmed that there was a pop-up race in Sacramento, which is about 100 miles from where I am. Yeah. And it was like a last minute thing. I don't think they wanted to attract too many people, but for the most part, Cross is cancelled where I am in Northern California this year. So that's a little bit sad, but I've still been getting out and riding. I'm just not training. No heart rate monitors, no power meters. Yeah. Just riding with my Australian cattle dogs that look a lot like Bingo and Bluey, if you've ever seen that cartoon series. I haven't, but um, I can imagine. Uh, have you got kids, Mickey? I've got stepkids. You got stepkids, how old? 13 and 18. Oh, okay. That's why you've not seen Bingo and Bluey. You probably enjoy it anyway. Like, yeah. I, the reason <laughs> I'm saying this is like, I think it was a, a joint production with uh, the Australian something or other on the BBC. But <laughs> they, they speak with Australian accents because I'm British. I don't know the difference between New Zealand and Australia. So I just use them interchangeably. But yeah, it's a very good cartoon if you have a good chance. <laughs> good. I'll note that. With your racing, would you use gels now, Chris? So what's your, because this is no, where I see a lot of no, athletes kind of struggle. I've actually done this. I remember because I had such a terrible time with the gels and it means almost like post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, like you see one of those gels, you're like, oh God, no. But I actually did it in a race and it just made me really thirsty. I still don't really know for sure why it is you get so much more thirsty when, you're, when you lack metabolic flexibility in the direction of fat metabolism. You, I don't know because you do water, it, metabolic water is a thing, right? So when you metabolize a lot of fat, it frees up water and that could be part of it. I think for the most part, it's just that when you eat something that's got a really high osmolality, it's like really dense, you need water to try and rehydrate that and get it across the epithelial cells in the gut. And so it just makes you super thirsty. And that's what I notice now. If I take a gel during a, in a race, it doesn't, I don't go into some sort of hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic slumber or, or anything. I don't really notice anything apart from I'm really thirsty. But I don't use anything now. I don't, like during training, I mean, you don't. Like cycle cross, you can be really good in cycle cross doing six hours a week. And so there's no need to eat anything on the bike. Like, it's just, you just don't need to do that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And um, outside of cycle cross, like, what other training do you do? Are you into your strength training, Chris? Yes. So I would say that my objectives have changed over the years. When I first started MBT, my objective was purely performance. Yeah. And I did eventually get my pro license on the bike. So when I sorted out all these issues, I did eventually get my UCI pro license. And I've done a few races as a pro lined up against Marco Fontana at UCI races and all this kind of stuff. Only when I say line up, I mean, he's 100 yards in front of me. <laughs> right? And the bikes are packed in about as close as they could get. And uh, by the time I get through the first pinch point, he's already done half a lap. And I'm about 15 minutes away from getting pulled. So, you know, when I say pro, I use it in the hobby pro sense. I did do that, but, you know, my goals now are really health span. How do I live as many quality years as possible? Yeah. And I think that's true of most of the people we work with, actually. When I talk to them, like they all have this history of competition and they've reached the point in their career where they're no longer sure if the juice is worth the squeeze. A client said that to me once. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze. And really what I want is to live more quality years. And sometimes they have, they can transport themselves into the future, like they're time traveling in their mind. And they imagine themselves as a 65-year-old or a 75-year-old dancing at their daughter's wedding or playing with their grandkids on the floor. Yeah. And they're thinking, well, what do I need to do to be able to do that in the future, right? And the answer is not 
gravel grinder races that are eight hours long, you know, and you're doing 30 hours a week of cycling in order to be competitive in them. The answer is, I mean, you have to do shorter events because you can't train enough. If you train that much to be competitive, like it's going to compromise other areas of your life. And that, and, and most importantly, strength training, right? So, you know, you see that as people age, you hit the loss of fast twitch fibers, the worst case scenario is sarcopenia, but really you're just looking at the loss of fast twitch fibers. And those are the fast twitch fibers that allow you to balance, right? And when you slip up in the shower, yeah. it's the fast twitch fibers that's going to stop you from falling and breaking your hip, right? And that could be the thing that prevents you from dancing at your daughter's wedding when you're 70 years old, right? So yeah, strength training, I think is a very important intervention for me and all of my clients. So nothing super fancy, you know, I, I have a hex trap bar and some plates that I got from Craigslist. I really like greasing the groove. Like I love habits and just not using a ton of willpower to get stuff done. And so I'm sure if you're familiar with uh, BJ Fogg, you know, and his habit stacks, like you kind of, you just stack oh, yeah, these yeah, things yeah. onto, you know, so every time I get back from a ride, I do a set of, or even two sets of heavy deadlifts, like you know, 300 pounds or something, maybe a bit heavier. And that's really all I got. I've also got TRX and uh, I love the blood flow restriction training. I did an interview with Jim Stray Gunderson a few weeks ago and those guys were kind enough to send me it's like the only freebie I've ever had since I started MPT, but I'm so happy. It's like a really good one. The Be Strong Blood Flow Restriction Training System. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the literature on this. It goes back at least two decades. Yeah, I am. And you have to be a bit careful. You know, Simon pointed this out that you could uh, figuratively and literally strangle a highly neurotic type A endurance athlete with a tool like this, you know, and uh, maybe it's okay to give up the marginal gains to, yeah. to keep you out of hospital. But you know, I really like the blood flow restriction training. It's super good when you're traveling. And for people that don't know, basically what you're doing is you're restricting venous return without impeding arterial inflow for the blood flow. And what it feels like is it feels like at the end of a cycle cross race, when I feel like an overwhelming desire to stop. Yeah. And I mean, I think what I'm feeling is hydrogen ions is what I'm feeling, but they build up really quickly. You can just walk up and down the stairs with these bands on your arms and legs, and you will get that feeling you get at the end of a cycle cross race. Okay. In- 30 repetitions and so it's a neat trick i don't like props so i've heard blood of the kind of blood flow restriction training i'm like is this just something else that i have to add to my yeah i know know? i know you don't you don't is it that hard like you know when someone sends you some for free like hell yes and then even if they didn't i probably would still be tempted to buy some because it's just so good when you're traveling like if you're an endurance athlete and you're doing a lot of traveling then obviously you can't throw a hex trap bar and 300 pounds of plates in your suitcase but you can talk like this the whole thing packs down to the size of i don't know a box of 200 cigarettes you know it doesn't take up any more room in my suitcase than the cigarettes so <laughs> it's perfect so you can take both your cigarettes and your blood flow restriction <laughs> training bands it's fantastic <laughs> i don't know why that popped into my head it was a size comparison, but it is a fair one. Like it's about the same size. That's a great analogy. <laughs> I'm a former smoker, by the way. That's how I know. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I was 11 when I smoked when I was 11 for about a week with a mate of mine. Oh, really? Yes. And then my mate was like, oh, I have a heart murmur. I shouldn't smoke. And so that was that kind of, luckily for me, I was like, well, if she's not going to do it, then I'm not going to do it. But I do remember having the um the minty yeah. menthol going, oh, that's great. And to be <laughs> fair, my mum was a smoker. And just to me, home was kind of black Cerebro, what Nescafe kind of black coffee and the freshly lit cigarette. I'm always like, hmm, yeah. that's quite nice. Of course, yeah. would I'm, never go there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not very good. If your goal is to dance at your daughter's wedding, then you should probably <laughs> lay off the menthol cigarettes. 
But you know what? How lucky, you know, you always wonder how people take kind of different paths. Like I'm one of five and my mum smoked, almost all of her siblings smoked. My dad didn't, I didn't, my younger sister did for a time, but you know, everyone else did, but most of my family has now given up, which is great. I've got one older sister who loved a bit, bit crazy. She still smokes, pretend she doesn't. We all know she does, you know, that kind of thing that it's going back to that, what? really motivates and kind of drives behavior change for whatever reason she hasn't found the thing that's going to help her has she got kids yeah she does i think that's frequently what people find is like you know you're probably familiar with victor frankl man's search for meaning or what is the why what is it that driving you is driving you and uh quite often it's something to do with your kids you know like having kids it forces you to examine every part of your childhood and reject the bits that you didn't like and keep the bits that you did. And yeah. I mean, I told that story in Rob Wolf. It starts when, after I'd gotten to the US and made some terrible mistakes with my diet and lifestyle. But actually, it started when I was an infant. I think I was breastfed for less than two weeks before somebody put me on a formula that consisted of mulch reduction, soybean oil, and whey protein. That was what I, my dad's garage is still full of hundreds of these tins with like knickknacks and screws and nuts and stuff and like that he still keeps for some reason yeah yeah and that's what I was fed on as an infant until presumably I was old enough a year old or something I could start eating more really terrible food so my story doesn't begin as an endurance athlete in my mid-30s it started probably before I was born right like I'm sure that yeah my mum had some similar trauma and her mum had trauma and it just goes on and on it goes yeah it's so interesting that Chris, if I go back to Nourish, Balance, Thrive, how have things changed with regards to how you approach or the approach that you take with clients? So obviously I heard you talk on Rob Wolf's podcast about organic acid testing. Now people could literally drop thousands of dollars on right. all of these tests. And you know, have you refined what you do at MBT now? Or is it still necessary for people to actually invest that money to really figure out what's going on? So what's your take on that? Well, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it. <laughs> yeah. So back in the day, I mean, that was my bias was I did all these tests and, you know, all of them, literally all of them. I did blood tests. I did stool tests. I did saliva tests. I did urine tests. And I found all these problems. And, you know, you fix the problems. And I think most of it, you know, it's like Voltaire said, the art of medicine is entertaining the patient whilst nature takes care of the disease, right? <laughs> so I think to a certain extent, that was true of me, that I was making these diet and lifestyle changes and nature was taking care of the problems I found on lab tests. But that was our bias when we started MVT. And it was what people wanted, you know, like they didn't have any problem. I mean, you spend $10,000 on a bike to take to Ironman Kona or whatever it is. Like, I mean, you drop five grand on some tests and it improves your power by uh, 5% or something. That's like money well spent, isn't it? It's like better money than what you spent on carbon fiber. So in the beginning, we did a lot of tests and we found a lot of problems. We fixed them. People got better. And it became a joke that we were seeing the same person over and over again. You know, like, oh, here's Bob. Remember Bob? Like we saw him about five minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, let me guess what his lab results are going to say. Yeah. And, you know, as a computer scientist, that kind of got me thinking, huh, actually, that's another good reason to reinvent yourself is that when you're a computer scientist and you're working in tech, there's a lot of other computer scientists there and all the low-hanging fruit has gone. All the problems are really hard because lots of engineers, lots of computer scientists have been hanging out there. But when you reinvent yourself and you go into a different industry, you'll find all kinds of interesting problems that are still low-hanging fruit just because there's not that many engineers here, right? Like there's not how many engineers are embedded inside of a health coaching company? Basically none, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I started wondering, well, what can we do about this? And, and of course, I discovered 
what everybody knows now, supervised machine learning is like the new skinny jeans, right? Like everything is supervised machine learning. If you're wondering why social media is so damn compelling, why you can't stop looking at the thing or the YouTube rabbit hole. How many YouTube rabbit holes have you been down? Oh, just one more video. Like, oh, this one looks really good. And then you start seeing more in the sidebar and you're like, oh, I've got to collect, I've got to watch them all. <laughs> the reason those recommender systems are so good is because supervised machine learning. And in that case with a YouTube recommender, it knows people, other people like you like videos like this. And so you'll probably like videos like this. And the same is true with the lab testing. People who look like you in basic blood chemistry also tend to have other fancy test results that look like this. It's very predictable. Given if I do a 70 US dollar basic blood chemistry with 38 markers on it, the type of test that doctors up and down the country are running every day, then the results of the fancy organic acids say, some of the things that you'll find on organic acids are very predictable given those basic markers. Yeah. And so that's what we do now. We do a basic $70 blood chemistry and then we make inferences about what might be on the other fancy tests that we might like to run. And we use that a bit like a recommender system. Oh, I see that you might like, you might enjoy to measuring blood levels of lead. <laughs> <laughs> I see that it's like a cloudy crystal ball, you know, like I see lead toxicity of a mild form in your future. And then you go back to the lab and you measure blood levels of lead and it costs you $20, $30 or whatever. Yeah. And and then you get slightly closer to the truth. Like it's all just educated guesses. You know, there is no, I mean, unless I do a biopsy, like put you in a blender and then take a sample of whatever came out of the blender and put it in a mass spectrometer. Like I'll probably never know exactly how much lead you have stored away in your blood and your adipose and your bone, but we can get slightly closer to the truth. And then once we get close enough to the truth, you can start making decisions. And many of the decisions that we make have little or no downside. So in the case of lead toxicity, you might like to do some intermittent fasting, right? You might want to do the fasting mimicking diet, or you might want to go for a bike ride before you have breakfast and just get some lipolysis going. And then when you get back, you might want to take some niacin, inhibit lipolysis. And then when it wears off, you get this massive rush of lipolysis. And then you get in the sauna and sweat everything out. There's some data on this. That oh, wow. You can, yeah, Stefan Jenis has some nice papers showing that metals are preferentially excreted in sweat. And then you think, well, what's the downside to this? Like you got in a sauna and you did some sweating. Well, there's little to no downside in that. And we can go back to the lab and measure your blood level of lead again and see what effect that's having. Maybe it has no effect and maybe that's okay. You know, we just like to know that we've controlled for the controllables and then it's okay if you have to accept the rest. But doing this investigation, I think is important. It certainly gets great results for our clients and it doesn't get worse results than when we used to spend you know, $5,000 on mass spectrometry yeah. for everybody that walked in the door. We knew it was like inefficient. You know, we'd say that we don't have to do these all at once. You know, we can start and then just work through incrementally. And people are generally the clients that we work with. They're like, no, screw that. I just want to do more. Just like, just, just do more. Yeah. And it's data, like often the people that you probably work with and I see to some extent as well are really data-driven people and they want answers. And they also like a diagnosis. They're like, right, now I right. know, you know, they've got something to kind of hang their head on. Actually, one of my questions was, you know, who would you kind of name as your biggest mentors? Uh, but as I'm kind of listening to you talk, like there are definitely, I suppose, some people. So you might even say that even beginning mm. with Lauren Cordain and Joel Friel's book, maybe your first yeah. introduction. But I mean, have you looked at any of Lauren Cordain's citations? Some of them are really terrible. Like, <laughs> you know, he tells people not to eat peanuts. And then you look at the study and it's like, I, you know, like 12 monkeys and six got peanut oil and the other six got soybean oil and then 
you know, one of them developed slightly more atherosclerosis in the peanut group. Therefore, no human should eat peanuts. Like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I might be exaggerating a little bit for effect here, but I mean, some of them are that bonkers, you know? And so, yeah, I definitely wouldn't put Cordain up there amongst my list of top influencers. Actually, some of these people just don't get any credit at all. So Jeremy Hendon, who I mentioned earlier, we did the Keto Summit. We still meet on a weekly basis. I mean, he's been hugely influential in shaping my thinking. Yeah. They've started many successful businesses. And then Simon as well, I would say, has been hugely influential. He was like my psychological enlightening. I didn't know anything about psychology. And now I'm in the, uh, the Valley of Despair, right? Uh, on the Dunning Kruger <laughs> with psychology. But, you know, I think it's the most important bit, right? It's like, well, for, at least for all our clients, it's not like they don't know what they should be eating and that they don't know they should be moving. It's that they struggle with the behavior change part. They say things like, I really struggle to get motivated. Monday morning, it's raining out. Oh, do I want to go for a run? No, I don't think so. Well, that's not really surprising, is it? Because we didn't evolve to exercise. We evolved to conserve as much energy as possible. So that's not really surprising. But then they also say things like, well, I really struggle to stay consistent. You know, like I feel like I get a good streak going and then something happens and life gets in the way and, you know, then I get injured and like, oh, and then I'm out for six weeks and then I feel like I'm back to square one. So it's all this stuff that's like answered by behavioral science and, and Simon and his psychology is not really a technical problem. You know, when you hear people talking about, you know, the relative composition, the macronutrients, micronutrients, all these fine level detail things in nutrition. Well, I personally, I've not found that stuff so terribly useful. I mean, I think humans are everywhere and they eat everything. And there's a wide variety of things that could work. And the main problem, in my opinion, is behavior change. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And as you talk about, you know, people haven't evolved to be physically active, or sorry, to exercise, not be physically right. active, but exercise. I feel the same way about health. It has right. only been really in recent times we've even had to think about health. So it's no surprise, right. really, that this isn't a driving motivator for a lot of people. And it's a bit boring, actually. You know, it's not that exciting to think, oh, I've really got to do something to help improve, you know, my blood pressure or my right. kind of diabetes risk because that involves cutting out all the fun stuff that I like. Yeah, it, depends. it really depends where you derive your fun, doesn't it? I it mean, maybe does. that's the most important part that I've learned from Simon is coming to understand, coming to underappreciate what is it that you value? Like, if you don't get that, like, if the only reason you're trying to reduce your blood pressure is because the doctor said I should reduce my blood pressure, yeah. you ain't going to stick with it. Like, there's no way. Like, you have to find, you know, skills like motivational interviewing, acceptance and commitment therapy has some really good exercises for figuring out what it is that you value in life. And then once you know that, like, once you know what it is that you care about, yeah. then as James Clear famously said recently, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. Yeah, nice. Right? And so if you want to become the sort of person that can play with their kids on the floor when you're 75 years old, is the donut you're about to eat, is that a vote for the type of person that you want to become in the future? And perhaps more importantly, if you keep, you might say, well, this one time won't matter. But if you do it consistently, serially, like as a time series, I eat a donut every day. Is though the accumulation of those votes, like compounding interest, is that a move towards the person I want to become or is it a move away from the type of person I want to become? Yeah, do you know what? And the way that you frame that is, I think, so much better than the memes that you see that every food decision is either helping you or killing you, yeah. you know? Like I find those kind of memes super unhelpful, but the way that you're describing that, that appeals to a different kind of driving motivation, I think. Right. Yeah, well, to be fair, I didn't synthesize this. It's in acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in motivational interviewing. You know, yeah. they call motivational interviewing love with a goal. <laughs> Make nice. the person feel heard. 
make them feel loved, but we are going somewhere, right? And so it's helping people find their intrinsic motivation yeah. to change, I think is obviously super duper important. So can you kind of describe then, Chris, we talked about how NBT has evolved with regards to the testing that you might recommend people. Mm. What is the experience that someone might have if they sign up with, the NB, with NBT? Yeah, so we do mostly one-on-one coaching. I say mostly. Recently, I did a group program with Simon, some mental coaching, COVID mental training. Oh, it was really good, actually. Simon's super good. We had a group of about 15. So, but mostly our stuff is one-on-one. Yeah. And so, yeah, you can come to the front page of our website, nourishbalancethrive.com. You'll find a button there. You can book a 50-minute starter session with either Clay or Megan, and they'll take a look at your history, and they'll share how we might work with you. And what that means is, I mean, so we do blood chemistry in everyone now. I don't care, right? Like I want to have a stake in the ground that lets me understand where it is that we are. Yeah. And I still do all the initial intakes. I look at people's history. Nice. Sometimes there's something we can work on right there and then, like stress management. Like Simon, again, has been instrumental with helping us manage stress for our clients. Maybe the best thing for me to do right here is to link to a podcast I did with Simon, How to Manage Stress. He has an exercise he calls the stress audit. Uh, Too long, didn't listen. Most people over-rely on one particular type of stress coping strategy. And there is a gender bias. So women tend to focus on things that filter the stress at its target, which is you. So think about, I don't know what you do. You phone a friend and talk to them about something. Yeah. Or you cry or you meditate, but you think all of those things, they don't really do anything to tackle the stress at its source. Whereas men tend to be more problem-based. They'll do time management and they'll do inbox zero. I mean, this is very applicable for athletes. Like maybe you're scared shitless of the swim. Like you could go get better at swimming. You could practice the start of that race where it's terrifying and people are kicking your goggles off and all that. You could get better in the problem sense of the issue. Or you could just meditate. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe some guided breathing before the race starts might help too. But it's not going to make you a better swimmer, right? And so there's two <laughs> ways of looking at it. And so most people, they have a gross imbalance. And I did a whole podcast on, with Simon on that. Nice. So sometimes I find something like that in that initial intake. Oh, we should do the stress audit together. This is going to be awesome. You're going to love this. Like I can see that you're over-relying on just one thing. And quite often with athletes, like moving my body makes me... It's actually both. You know, you can remove yourself from a house where it's kind of chaotic and stressful. And that's obviously a problem-based coping strategy. And then the exercise itself changes the way that you feel. And so that's an emotion-based coping strategy too. It's both. It's like exercise is complicated like that. Yeah. So sometimes I find something like that to work on in the initial appointment. I take a really good history. We order a blood chemistry. We use some algorithms to determine where are you, right? So we use the Intermountain Risk Score. Horn published a paper in 2009. And using basic blood chemistry, they were able to predict five and 10-year mortality. Mm. And so that's a really nice, you know, how can I reduce the blood chemistry down to one single thing? Yeah. And the other thing we've been doing recently is kind of like that is phenoage predicts mortality. Yeah. And so that again can be predicted. So it's like biological age, like how much, you know, one way of looking at it is like how much work has your genome done? Like how much repair work was yes. required to keep it in the shape that it is now? And so, yeah, but biological age might be another thing that you use to measure progress. Like in a scrum, are you familiar with the agile method? It's like become all the rage in software engineering. Oh, so yeah. all the coders will know what I'm talking about. Uh, so this idea that you have a stand-up meeting and then you create a Kanban board that we have in Trello. We have a to-do column. There's like a bunch of tasks in there. And then we're going to sprint, right? We're going to work for two weeks. It's very much like in rugby. I know you're a big fan of rugby in New Zealand, right? I've heard this team is quite good there. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so it's like a scrum, like, you know, it, literally like a scrum, we get together, throw the ball in, just it around. It's not like, you know, the paternalistic, white-coated doctor telling you what to do. It's much more like the scrum. We're like meeting of minds as equals. And then you work for two weeks, you get shit done. And then we meet again. And at some point in the near future, we'll redo the blood chemistry and see how far you've got. And sometimes we go off into the other testing, like, oh, let's do a gut test. It looks like you might have some sort of pathogen. Mm. And the machine learning algorithms can be helpful for directing us like that. And then, you know, maybe you take some herbs. Like maybe you find that was my thing. I took all of the herbs, artemisinin and oregano and like, it was just like the entire herbal war chest. And it was actually really helpful. I deflated. I was like a big blown up balloon. It was like a basketball where my gut was. It just kind of deflated over the course of about 10 days after I took all these herbs, which was fantastic. And I was so sure it would come back when I stopped taking the herbs and it never did, never has. And so, you know, for some people, I mean, they call it, they probably call this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth now, <laughs> which is kind of a misnomer. It should really be small intestinal bacterial dysbiosis. It's yes. not necessarily overgrowth. But anyway, those herbs can be really helpful. And again, it's all quantified. We're going around validated learning, understanding what we just did, how that's impacting your unique biochemistry. And then we iterate. Yeah. And then at some point, people sort of graduate the program. You know, you get to the point where I'm like, you know what? I feel awesome. Like, I don't really need you as much as I once did. And those people graduate to a sort of maintenance program where we're running testing less frequently just to make sure that they're not backsliding. Yeah, nice. And that's what you want, right? You want to kind of teach people tools along the way so they don't need you because that's ultimately, and I mean, it's not a great business model, but equally, it's uh, from a kind of human <laughs> perspective, it's, it's a nice feeling. Well, uh, I was going to say, no, as a business model, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, that's why I cringe a little bit when people say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I should go get a job with Chris or I should ask Chris how he does this because, you know, I don't know that I've really found something that's a terribly good business model, right? I mean, we're exchanging our time for money, like you, which is a terrible business model because there's only so many hours in the day you can sell. Totally. And then we fix people. Megan keeps fixing people all the time. I have to keep going finding new clients. And <laughs> generally, referrals suck in our industry. Like, you know, somebody, you get a great result with a client. They say, oh, you really need to fix my mom. I like, want you to fix my mom so badly. And then like mom turns up for one or two sessions and she is like your sister, right? Like so not into it, you know? Yes. And I'm just gonna like be nice and placate my sister. And then, you know what? I'm out of here. Yeah. And, and you so, know those people as well, right? You can spot them as soon as you, yeah. you know, they're yeah. there because someone else thinks it's a good idea. It's not because they're right. driven to do anything. No. And so, yeah, you have to do marketing. You have to continually be trying to acquire clients. And you know, getting good results for your clients, as I'm sure you know, is actually pretty straightforward. But yeah. getting people to sign up in the first place is probably the hardest thing that we do still, even to this day. Yeah, for sure. So um, what do you take now, Chris? So supplement wise? All of them. You should see my supplement graveyard. It's pretty impressive. It's not actually not as impressive as it was back in the day. Yeah. It's still pretty impressive. Actually, I said that nobody sends me freebies. People do send me supplements. I've had all kinds of weird lotions and potions sent to me over the years, and uh, I never throw anything out. I take a multivitamin. Yeah. Which, which is brand? Not exciting, is it? Uh, I like the Thorn Multivitamin yeah. Elite. Nearly all our clients take that. It's been solid for a long time. It's certified NSF, which might be important for some people listening to this. And then what else do I take? Creatine, obviously. You're not an athlete unless you take creatine. I'm sorry. No, I've taken, I <laughs> started kidding. taking that about eight weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, nearly everyone we uh, test is dripping in homocysteine and quite often the creatine is super good for helping take a burden off the methylation system. And then you see a spontaneous reduction in homocysteine, which I think is generally a good thing. But it's like the most well-studied supplement. Yes. It seems like it might have some neuroprotective benefits if you're the sort of person that is prone to having their bell rung like a mountain biker. Yeah. It's cheap as dirt. 
can't buy bad. Like if you get Korea Pure anything, I buy the Thorn stuff, but anything that's Korea Pure is, is going to be good. So that's pretty much the only things I take regularly now, to be honest. Oh, so you know Ben Greenfield. Do you know what? I listened no. to A Day in the Life of Ben Greenfield. I'm exhausted by everything yeah. that he does. But I love listening to what he does because he would yeah. be one person I would think is absolutely superhuman. And I have to say, when I, I met him at a conference once, and he was one of the nicest people that I talked to at that conference. And it was, I think it was in um, Berkeley, the Ancestral Health. Oh, yeah, I was there. Somehow I missed you. Yeah, it's true. Ben is larger than life. I've met him several times in person and he does look as fantastic as he does in the Instagram pictures. Yes. But yeah, I think sometimes people misunderstand his audience, you know. It's a good question, isn't it? What are you optimizing for? And for Ben, I think there's a sort of, there's a large entertainment component and, you know, novelty is important in entertainment. People generally get bored of hearing about Western A Price and bone broth, you know, every <laughs> week, right? Like no one's going to get excited about that after two years, right? No. So, you know, that's how you get into shining red light on your genitalia and peptides and like all these very questionable marginal <laughs> things, you know? Yeah, Ben, I mean, you can't question his results, right? He looks absolutely fantastic. <laughs> totally. Well, what about you, Chris? What does a day in the life look for Christopher Kelly? You know, I keep coming back to this Kurt Vonnegut quote that I think I rediscovered recently, which is, um, we were put on this earth to fart around and don't let anyone tell you any different. (laughs) (laughs) A typical day in the life contains a lot of me farting around. I get up pretty early, like maybe five or six at the latest. And that's when I do deep work, right? Like that time, nobody's up yet. No one's going to be up until at least seven. So I've got one, maybe two hours to get some really deep work done. So that's when I do my coding, right? Like all that machine learning stuff I talked about. That's when that happens. Yeah. And uh, then we all eat breakfast together. Even COVID didn't change anything for us because I've always been working from home since my kids were born. Nice. So we all eat breakfast together and it's typically eggs, US wellness meats, do really good organ meat based sausages like liverwurst and Braunschweiger and head cheese and then I will have some carbs with breakfast but not very much like maybe half or even less of a sweet potato Mm. I drink a shit ton of coffee and then walk dogs obviously you know the dogs are chomping at my leg to go walk and I'm very lucky I live here in the redwoods and so I can go down into the trees down you know like very rugged steep terrain so it's quite heavy going as far as walking goes, I guess Americans would call it hiking. Where I come from, it's just walking. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> hiking with the dogs. And then typically I'll drag back out. We've got this wood-fired hot tub that I'm in love with. We sit out at night and we look at the stars and Elon Musk's uh, Starlink satellites marching across the sky from our wood-fired hot tub. And so I've got to keep getting the wood to fire the wood-fired hot tub. But don't listen to my interview with Arden Pope where he talks about air pollution because then I look like a total hypocrite with the wood-fired <laughs> hot tub. But yeah, it's a really good uh, workout, you know, dragging these redwood limbs. The, the redwood trees have these really heavy, really dense wood yes. limbs that fall out and they make super good firewood. So I end up dragging those out of the steep terrain for the wood-fired hot tub. And then I'll do, it's all habit stacked, right? Like I'm not planning this. I'm just, it just all happens automatically. And then when I finish my walk, I do 10 chin-ups and then I go inside, do a bit more work. I usually go eat lunch, pretty light lunch, sardines or something, blueberries. And then I go ride my bike for maybe 90 minutes with the dogs usually. And then we all have dinner together at four o'clock. I would say breakfast is the biggest meal of the day. Yeah. You know, the chronobiology stuff that Greg Potter talked about. I'm doing all of that. And so 4 p.m. dinner, early time restricted eating, not that many calories. And then the kids will probably eat again after that. I've got two kids, seven and two. Mm. And they'll probably eat again. Like They need to eat more frequently than me for whatever reason. And that's it. We're all in bed by nine. So that's why I get up so early. You know? Yeah, nice. Um, 
I think it's really important what we've done, actually what Julie has done with baby led weaning, avoiding shit from squeezy pouches, avoiding bottles, no formula. My daughter, seven-year-old daughter was breastfed until she was four. My wife is an absolute legend, both with breastfeeding and with feeding the kids. And now we have kids that are stoked to eat US wellness meats. Amazing. They eat everything, they eat protein, they eat fat, they eat carbs, but they're not what people would call picky eaters. Like, I think that's where this starts is, you know, once you've given your kid a bunch of delicious refined carbs from a squeezy pouch, good luck getting them to eat a parsnip. They're just not going to want to do that or broccoli. And so the baby led weaning thing, I think has really been important because it sucks. You know, like we have lots of clients like this. They're living completely separate lives from the rest of their family. Yeah. You talk to them, they say, oh yeah, the kids call it dad food. You're like, oh shit, I didn't want to do that. Like I didn't want to create a totally separate life from your family. Like, you know, I want this to be a, a unified tribe, not dad food. Anyway, sorry, that was a very long answer to your question. I hope it was good. No, that was great. Now, are you sleeping outside? I am. How do you know that? A podcast. Can't remember which one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a 1997 Eurovan that Brilliant. we bought to go to bike races. And I noticed that some of the best sleep I had was in the Eurovan. Yeah, And wow. one day I thought, you know what, screw it. I'm bringing, so my front garden's kind of weird. It's, there's a steep canyon and then there's a bridge that comes over it. And you wouldn't think the bridge is wide enough to get it across. But I did bring the Eurovan across. And so now it's parked in front of my house and I sleep in the pop top in the Eurovan. And uh, quite often my seven-year-old daughter is in there with me as well. Awesome. Uh, we've also got a tent outside actually. And my, there's a queen bed in there. So you could say it's glamping. I love and it. quite often my wife sleeps out there. So quite often there's nobody sleeping in the house. Yeah. But, you know, we're lucky we live in the Redwoods. There's no light pollution, no street lights. The only Wi-Fi signal is mine. It's awesome being outside. All I can hear is crickets. And, uh, you know, when you look outside, you see the start. So, yeah, I'm very, very lucky like that. When I heard that, I just thought that was awesome. Because I can see, obviously, because you're outside now, as we're <laughs> yeah. interviewing, and your back garden looks amazing just because you are, like, overlooking, like, the forest. It's awesome, Chris. Yeah, it was awesome until the CZU, I think I'm pronouncing that right, CZU lightning complex in August. There were some famous wildfires on the West Coast. Yes. Here in, and like, it was nuts. Like, uh, there was this really weird storm. I've n- never seen anything like it. And I don't think anyone's seen anything like it, actually, in Santa Cruz. I woke up in the middle of the night. I was in the Eurovan with my daughter. We're like lo- looking out and this uh, awning thing that I'm stood under right now was just like flapping a foot up and down. And it's like super windy, but no, it was a thunderstorm, but no rain. And it's just like this crazy lightning bolt. So we were sat there watching it, just like all this amazing lightning. And uh, then we went back, we did what anyone would do, which is and we went back to sleep. And uh, the rest of our neighbors were all sat on their balconies, you know, like watching the lightning bolts. And then eventually, you know, the red starts to rise as a fire has started. And uh, the next morning I went down to the gate, not far from, and we look out onto two and a half thousand acres of redwoods, the San Vicente land. And it's just a wall of smoke. I'm like, okay, we're out of here. So we loaded up the Eurovan and we got out of there. And then a couple of days later, it was all evacuated and our house came really close. So there's a house maybe 200 yards from where I'm standing now burned to the ground. And beyond that, there's this ashes like it really roasted the redwoods are actually very resilient to it it's a fire ecosystem so i think it needs to burn periodically in order for to complete the life cycle but yeah pretty scary and it's not done a lot of good for the trails i went out and rode this morning and i went on some trails i've not been on for a while and it was just deep ash and then the you know the leaves that are all got burnt, yeah. like toasted they've all now dropped and so it's just like super squidgy like the trails are really slow almost like they're muddy um so it's kind of a shame but it's hopefully it'll rain soon and it'll all be good yeah like the redwoods are amazing. Like we went camping near near Mount Rainier, actually, 
a couple of years ago, which I know is different from where you are. I... It's a bit further north, I think, isn't it? Yeah, we were kind of Seattle, Portland, either between or around, and they were just magnificent. Have you been to New Zealand, Chris? No, it's definitely on our list. Yeah, I mean, everyone raves about it. I've got several friends. The mistake I made maybe with starting a health coaching business was I didn't have as much disposable income anymore. So all my friends that work for Google, you know, they go on these mountain biking trips to New Zealand and (laughs) they get taken to the top of the hill in trucks and helicopters and like all this stuff. It looks absolutely amazing. And all I see is the photos. But one day we will make it to New Zealand. We've got a forum and some of our friends on the forum are in New Zealand. And so one day we'll get down there and see it, I'm sure. I'd li- I mean, travel is the best education for kids, right? So I have to do it. 100%. Yeah. And of course, once conferences start up again and who knows, yeah. maybe there'll be some amazing. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Do you think there'll be an ancestral health symposium in New Zealand then? One day. Fingers crossed something similar, Will. I've got a mate okay. actually, Cliff Harvey, who probably hasn't been on Nourish Balance Thrive. And I think you really need to get him on. He is amazing. And he's based here and he runs, he's very good at kind of bringing together like minds and kind of thinkers in the field of nutrition and whatnot. So he's one to get uh-huh. people over. So, and also he'd be one to, you'd interview Chris. I think you'd really enjoy speaking to him. Oh, I'll look him up afterwards. Yeah, I think I'm at the point now, seven years in, I might actually have something to say. I might, I'm like tempted to do a, a talk even, then I can justify it. <laughs> oh, I totally think so. Now, my last question is, have there been any podcast guests where... After interviewing them, you have immediately changed something about what you did or something about what you're doing. You know, we talked about how you're very good at kind of once you find out something and you're like, right, I'm going to do that. If you feel that it's going to solve an issue or maybe fix a problem or help in some way, anything. That is a really good question. And usually what happens is the podcast is confirming my bias, right? And so... I develop a worldview and then I'm like, all right, I want to present this. Like, who's going to be the person that helps me do that? And so Malcolm Kendrick is a really good example. I know you know Malcolm. And I've been reading his blog for a long time. And then I had the opportunity to travel to the UK for the Real Food Rocks Festival that goes on in the UK. I'd highly recommend that if you ever get the chance or if you're in the UK. Uh, The Public Health Collaboration run that conference. I think it was virtual like everything else this year, but it'll be back in Ambleside or somewhere really lovely. So I'd recommend that. So I had the opportunity to go to Ambleside for that conference. And then I went to Macclesfield to interview Malcolm in person. And he is just, I mean, he's a phenomenal thinker. And I think he nailed it with cardiovascular disease. Like you hear all these people talking about advanced lipids. I don't think you know the process that causes cardiovascular disease. I really don't. I think you should look at Malcolm's work. So I read all his blog and then I went and interviewed him. I actually interviewed him twice. And that episode is by far my most popular episode. But by, you see what I'm saying? By the time I interviewed him, I'd already made up my mind. But what's one, so another good example, actually, and this is what I'd probably pitch the Ancestral Health Symposium on, is when I interviewed Stephanie Welsh, that was at the Physicians for Ancestral Health Symposium. That happens usually in Scottsdale, Arizona, although our neurologist, actually, you said, asked about influences. Josh has been a hugely influential person to me over the years. Josh Turknet, he's the president for Physicians for Ancestral Health, and they run a conference each year, and it's usually in Scottsdale, but I believe it's going to be in Georgia next time, which is where, which is where Josh lives, but none of that is pinned down yet. But anyway, I interviewed uh, Stephanie Welsh and she describes herself as a disruptive anthropologist. And we did an interview about her work investigating male circumcision as genital mutilation. And I think that's no exaggeration. It really is. You should look at her work on that. She's probably got some talks on YouTube you can find. And during that interview, she mentioned this term, the nuclear family. 
At that time, I'd never heard that term before. What do you mean nuclear family? What other type could there be? What? what I don't get it. Like that was the moment. I don't know what it was. This is like 2016 or 17, maybe. And so that was like, well, I've got to find out what is this thing. And so for the last two or three years, I don't know, I've like been on a mission to like try and understand where the hell this thing came from and what impacts it's had on our life. And I've made many major breakthroughs, but one was finding Joe Henrik's new book, The Weirdest People in the World, which I'd recommend. It tells the history of the monogamous nuclear family, which I think has done great harm to us weird people. Weird is an acronym. It stands for Westernized, Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. So US, UK, New Zealand, Australia, they're all weird. Yeah. Very individualistic, analytical thinkers. They read a lot. They only acquire knowledge through analysis right they don't they don't feel to know they describe themselves in terms of the the individual properties and not in terms of their relationships they have with other people so but most of the world are not weird and so that's sort of the central thesis of the book and you have to like all psychological research has been done in weird societies so there's probably a bias in almost all of the psychology literature because of this so yeah interesting book i'm going to interview joe in december kind of excited about that one brilliant now josh turknett is he the guy that wrote I want to say the migraine cure or the migraine miracle. Or... Close. It's better than that. It's mymigrainemiracle.com. Trips off your tongue. You know anyone with a migraine, send them to mymigrainemiracle.com. Say, so, yeah, Josh is a neurologist. He's a migraineur, meaning he gets migraine headaches himself. Yes. Or at least he did in 2014 when you saw him present the migraine as the hypothalamic distress signal was yes. the title of his talk in 2014. So remember it. I was like, holy shit, there's a neurologist and he fixed his migraines with the paleo diet. And Josh is, has since helped countless thousand people I know. recover from migraines without drugs. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a licensed medical doctor. He's a neurologist. He helps people with drugs. But I think he's been responsible for mass quitting of uh, triptans and other things that cause rebound headaches and helping people to migraine freedom. So yeah, if you know anyone with a migraine, send them to mymigrainemiracle.com. I do. And do you know, the unfortunate thing is that my migraine cure, it's very evangelical. I'm like, okay, ignore the name of the book or ignore the name of the website, right. but the information is solid. Normally when right. you come across a, a name like that, it's kind of the magic cottage cheese diet or, you know, that's kind of <laughs> what it reminds me of. But I listened to him. I think you interviewed him a few years ago on NBT and that's I think how I came across his I feel really bad now that I didn't he wasn't the first name that came to mind when you said who's been so influential because our entire he put a structure a framework around what we'd already been doing but in doing so like it just made it so much easier to communicate to clients he gave us a he gave us a vocabulary right so as you know at the ancestral health symposium the name of the game is minimizing environmental mismatch you, I mean look at the harder as a model of public health well I'm not saying you should get rid of your plumbing and your electricity and go back to hunting and gathering, but you have to understand why it is that they don't get cardiovascular disease or diabetes or obesity and even some cancers. Uh, you know, that deserves an explanation. And that's maybe the reason the Ancestral Health Symposium or the Ancestral Society exists is to answer that question. And, you know, Josh came along with uh, his How to Win Angry Birds story and the four quadrant model. I mean, it's on my desktop right now. There's like three things on my desktop. And one of them is, Josh's four quadrant model and I'll share my screen it's like okay so here are the quadrant one things we like we go for the game level interventions first sleep movement stress reduction ancestral diet circadian alignment walking functional movement dance music social clubs and rituals sunlight in the a.m pets and so it goes on all these quadrant game level interventions that minimize environmental mismatch and then you've got things that are still game level but they exploit and disrupt existing physiology 
like fasting and uh, certain types of strength training, you know, probiotics, brain.fm, and then you get into the source code level stuff, right? And once you get to the source code, no one really knows what they're doing, right? Melatonin, vitamin D, magnesium, zinc, selenium, vitamin A, you know, all these stuff that you could potentially be deficient in, but nobody really knows what they're doing. They're just making educated guesses and recommending you take these things. And so now we're sort of into the weeds, marginal gains, you might call this. Yeah. And then you can go on from there deeper into the source code. And this is where you find all pharmaceuticals, right? Like when somebody gives you a statin drug and attempts to lower your cholesterol in the hope that it prevents cardiovascular disease, I would say that they're deep into quadrant four, right? Like they're fiddling in the margins, right? There's not compared to getting enough sleep. Like no cardiologist would argue with me on this. Like, you know, they'd probably argue with me on the effectiveness of statins, but they would, you know, sleep or statins, they're going to say sleep, right? Yeah. So this allows us to prioritize things. You know, you talked about how overwhelming it can be to listen to Ben Greenfield. Well, the next time you listen to the Ben Greenfield podcast, go Google Josh's four quadrant model. And then, so then you've got this framework in front of you and ask yourself the question, now this thing that Ben is talking about right now, what is it? What quadrant does it belong? Yeah, nice. And, you know, he talks about a lot of source code level stuff because that's where the entertainment lies. Yeah. But he doesn't issue all the game level stuff either. He talks about a lot of Q1 and Q2 interventions too. And uh, that's where the massive gains are being made, right? And so I think Ben is misunderstood in, in that sense as well, actually, that people think he just goes straight to the, the marginal, but he's not. He talks about sleep too. No, you know, I agree with you. And in fact, if anything, his spirituality and his connections with his family, and that really seems to be kind of underpinning a lot of what he talks about. Yeah, it's true. And then, but there may be, you know, I think a lot about this is like, well, how do you decide? Like, I think there's a downside. I mean, so he openly identifies as religious. Well, that's where the monogamous nuclear family came from. Pretty sure he's in a monogamous nuclear family. And maybe that's okay. If you're rich enough, then you can just purchase all the social support that you used to get from your tribe, right? So your, your wet nurse in the beginning, like normally you would have had multiple women breastfeeding your child. And then you've got mentors, teachers, tutors, and all these people, friends, babysitters, like all these people, you just hire them now. So if you've got enough money, you can just go ahead and hire all those people that would have been part of your tribe. Yeah. And that's great if you've got enough money, but not everybody has enough money to do that, you know? And then now a lot of people, even if they did have enough money, they had it taken away from them when, when COVID struck, right? Yeah. Lockdown and suddenly you can't have your nanny anymore. Now you're screwed, right? And you have to do the teaching yourself, like homeschooling right now. So yeah, I think the monogamous nuclear family has done much harm to society and weird societies, that is. And it was a campaign against polygamy and cousin marriage that was enacted by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. And the whole history is in Joe Henrik's book, The Weirdest Societies in the World. You know, I think you find there's a downside to his spirituality. You know, I'm not saying he shouldn't do it. It's just that it comes with the price. I mean, that's where he draws a lot from that. But it's sort of the same thing but it's different for different people you know he's got christianity yeah. other people have different i suppose they align themselves with maybe different religions or view spirituality differently so it's not this organized religion right. it's getting out into yeah. the bush it's being with your friends that kind of thing yeah i mean i've got my god of the flying spaghetti monster not sure if you're familiar no <laughs> there's a whooshing noise as the joke goes over mickey said yeah you could google this the god of the flying spaghetti monster it was a Sort of standing joke in, in finance where I came from, but it's pretty funny. Okay, I'll Google that one. Chris, thank you so much for your time this morning. Like, it's been really great just to sit down and chat about, I suppose, your evolution and with regards to kind of your health evolution from health crisis to kind of where you are now. And obviously, we didn't do a real deep dive into that, but anyone who's more interested, um, I'll link to Paleo Solution Podcast back in 2015 mm. where I heard it because I think you did go into <laughs> a little bit more detail there. It was great. I'd probably be embarrassed if I heard it now, wouldn't I? No, you wouldn't. No, it was great. Oh, good. And then also just 
how Nourish Balance Thrive works because, I mean, of course I could have gone to your website and had a look, and I did, but I think that you kind of explained your process, but also how it's evolved as well. And I think that's, yeah. I think the evolution for it, to my mind, make, seems to make it a much more accessible thing for a lot of people who, again, might not have those hundreds of thousands of dollars to kind of right. drop on tests, but. Yeah, people were stoked. We used to do this $10,000 program. Yeah. And, you know, you didn't pay it all at once, but that's how much it cost for year one. And I didn't make that number up. It was how much, you know, we did it for a couple of years and that's how much our best clients were spending in year one. But of course, when you're trying to sell someone on a program, like that's a lot of friction. Like they don't know whether you're going to fix their restless legs or not, you know. And so, I mean, it's partly the money, but it's also the time. So that charging a smaller retainer, a $1,500 retainer, and then charging an hourly rate that comes out of that retainer is, has been, I think, an important thing for lowering the barrier to entry for working with us. But even just what you focus on as well, you know, like the four quadrant model, the really getting the fundamentals. And I think often people don't, that's not where they, they almost want to go to down to the source code and they want right. the pharmaceuticals, they want the supplements, that's what they think yeah. is going to fix them. But actually... You bring it back to but the, the basics. Yeah, I mean, Josh has done a really good job of talking about this and on my podcast and elsewhere. People want to peek behind the curtain and see how the machine works. Like they want to know, like the Wizard of Oz, right? Let's peek behind the curtain and see how the thing works. Like that's the entertainment in what Ben Greenfield talks about. And everyone else too, Rhonda Patrick with all the enzymes and cofactors and, you know, genetic this and like all this really technical stuff that like not even, you know, the most technical people I know can keep up with all of it. No. And it's also where the business model is, right? Like, so your nootropics and your peptides and your ketone esters and like all this stuff that's all marginal in its impact. But it's also a fantastic business model. Like I'm never going to get Matthew Walker as hard as he has tried with his book, right? It's like <laughs> he's still not going to get as rich as you know people selling ketone esters and, and peptides like how much money has prove it made selling those ketone salts compared to how much money matthew walker made selling a book right like there's, there's no comparison there in the business model so, no i know i actually yeah, I think... the, the prove it guy that i know drives a tesla and lives on the gold coast <laughs> that's like i'm so suspicious is it a multi-level marketing scheme in new zealand yes i believe it is that doesn't necessarily say the product is no good but no. it definitely makes me suspicious enough not to buy it do you know i sell it oh you do i do a rubbish job of selling it too i'm like the worst uh. business person ever i hardly ever tell anyone and i use them myself but actually actually over the last couple of years i've just really moved away from that because my passion is doing the relationship stuff with the people, you know, right. I would never be a very good business person in that. I'm very envious of people who make a shit ton of money, obviously, right. and wish I could do that as well. When I look at Instagram accounts of doTERRA people and, you know. Yeah, I know, but you get to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> but then they probably do too, but it's just where your values system lies. I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I've realized that, I mean, this is in the literature too, is like you need a certain amount of money to be happy, but more is not necessarily better, right? Yeah, it's, it's true. Kind of, so it's almost better that you like figure out how much you need and then work backwards from there rather than... 100%. Hey, Chris, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you. And I'm going to link to, I... I took notes on the papers that you mentioned, the people that you mentioned, and the books, and of course the websites and stuff. And so I'll put them all in the show notes. They will not be as comprehensive possibly as Nourish Balance Thrive. I cheat. I've got Elaine to thank for that. I don't write my own show notes. That's why they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Well, Barry's my sound engineer. He's my hubby. So, uh, okay. but yeah, I haven't you, quite got him to um, do the show notes stuff yet. It's a team he, sport. It has to be, right? Hey, um, thanks, Chris. It's been awesome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So team, 
I hope you enjoyed that conversation and you could probably tell that I could chat to Chris all day long because we have such similar interests and ideas in and around health and well-being and um, I really hope that at some point in the not too distant future we get to catch up in person again at a conference somewhere overseas you know that place that we used to be able to go so next week i'm super excited to bring to you my conversation with dr eric helms who is a physique scientist uh he has a phd and a couple of masters actually so that might indicate his level of knowledge and understanding in and around science and so we chat all about concepts related to physique science bodybuilding, weight loss and body composition for general population so you do not have to be a bodybuilder or a bikini model to benefit from listening to tips that Eric and I discuss and concepts in and around energy adaptation, flexible and rigid dieting approach. So it was definitely an awesome conversation to have with Eric. Until then though, definitely check out Nourish Balance Thrive, which you can contact Chris and his team of coaches at. And of course, you can download his podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And you can contact me at Mickey Willardin on Instagram and Twitter, at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Facebook, or on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can also sign up to my online coaching platform which provides you with menu plans a weekly email in and around any kind of topic that i'm interested in and that's got me thinking over the last wee while and weekly forums on our members only facebook page and the ability to shoot questions at me that I can answer and help individualize your nutrition response. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, then signing up to those um, meal plans is a perfect way to do that. So until then, team, until next Wednesday, have a fabulous week. And hey, if you liked the podcast, it would be awesome if you jumped on your favorite platform like iTunes and left us a five-star review because that just enables more people to become aware of Wikipedia and the content that we are delivering week to week. So um, I'd really appreciate that. And if there's anyone that you want to see me reach out to and bring on the podcast, please just ping me on one of those different platforms and I'll do my best to get them on. Awesome team. Have a fab day. See ya.